Okay, so just a quick introduction to this episode. I realised when I was editing it, when I got to my favourite film of the year, I made a slight error when I was talking about the film. And if anyone can spot where that error is, I will send you a Criterion Blu-ray of your choice to anywhere in the world. Just don't be ordering any kind of box sets or anything too expensive. It'll be a single Blu-ray. I suppose we'll, we'll limit it to that. But if you can find what the error is, I will gladly uh, send that on to you. And sadly, over the past couple of days, um, John Hurt has passed away. So I thought I would kick things off with a clip from one of my favourite TV series featuring him. So hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Your emperor is amongst you once again. All his wars successfully concluded and the victorious armies brought back to Rome. He had thought in his divine innocence that the roads might be lined with cheering crowds. He had thought that the streets might be strewn with flowers. He had thought that there might be messages to greet him, telling him of triumphs to be awarded. What did he find? this conqueror of the Germans, this victor over the mighty Neptune. The streets, empty of crowds and flowers, no triumphs awarded, no games, no celebrations, but three miserable old ex-consuls waiting at the gates to greet him in a room full of cowardly stay-at-home senators who spent all their time in the theatre and at the baths while he has spent six months living no better than a private soldier? Yet, your emperor has returned, but with this in his hand. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and this is going to be my 2016 review show. Before I get into that, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I've had a few requests from you um, asking me what's happened to the Bond Marathon and I fully intend on um, continuing with that. In fact, I will make a point of putting an episode out very, very soon after this. Um, it won't be on the main podcast feed. You'll have to go to my blog, so I will provide details of where you can find that. Um, secondly, um, I've been asked about kind of other shows that I was going to do because I do. I have become consciously aware of the fact that I am kind of sticking to kind of a review format at the moment which isn't really what I want to do all the time my aim is to try and do one of those a month and put out another type of show each month as well so um, yeah watch this space on that it might be um, I'm actually doing some research at the moment for a film which I know is very popular I won't reveal it just yet but um, so that there should be a slightly kind of more varied series of shows coming out and I, I still need to do my Ridley Scott part three as well because there's been a few films that's come out from that um from him in the, in the intervening years and I know people and I can just see by the downloads actually that those shows had that they were extremely popular with people and had some lovely feedback from you all regarding them so yes um there's lots to do um sadly it's just it's just time but I have uh made it my vow this year to do as much podcasting as I possibly can. I seem to have really found a kind of drive and zest again for all films film related. I think I went a bit of a rut last year to be brutally honest with you, which I suppose is a nice way of segueing into my 2016 uh, review. Um, 
just a few kind of general observations really from, from from my perspective was that I watched over 70 films last year that had a 2016 release date and that is a lot I, I think that's the most I've seen in a, in a year and that might suggest that I was watching lots of films which I enjoyed and unfortunately it wasn't the case because the vast majority of films that I saw last year my reaction to them was kind of more of a just a kind of yeah just a there was a lot of three out of five to six out of ten type films that I was seeing and I was becoming a little bit frustrated really to try and kind of find out some of the gems and seek them out and I did I think I managed to in the end um certainly my, my top 10 list I think there's a nice variety in there but I had to really dig deep I think in 2016 to to find films that were really interesting to me um I'm not entirely sure if any on the f any of the films in my top 10 lists um could be regarded as classics um and that's that's kind of a shame uh really I I think I it's always nice when a year goes by and you find a film which you kind of genuinely believe to be one of the greatest you've ever seen and that didn't really happen for me I haven't had that moment it might come back when I kind of do some review go back and revisit some of those films I'm not sure but for the most part nothing really kind of made me uh, kind of do handstands with joy that I discovered that a film that I know was going to be with me for many many years um, and I think what I was I was expecting the kind of the culture to be slightly more angry and more confrontational and more challenging and instead I really kind of came across a succession of banal films really that kind of even kind of mustering the energy to go to the cinema was a job in and of itself and despite a kind of a promising January when we had films like The Hateful Eight and The Revenant I think the rest of the year was pretty much a kind of desert really punctuated with the odd kind of little bit of quality and and when I refer to kind of cinema being more kind of cult, uh, the, sorry, the culture being more angry and more confrontational, and let's be honest, 2016 was a pretty seismic year for politics, and perhaps the kind of the knock-on effect. Perhaps we might see more kind of politically edged films from kind of 2017, 2018. I didn't see Ken Loach's *I Daniel Blake*, which I um, I understand was a very cutting critique of the benefit system, or the incredibly unfair benefit system that we've had under the the, the Tory government here in the UK, but. I was expecting a little bit more really. One of the most political films I saw all year was Michael Bay's The 13 Hours The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi and yes I'm talking about that Michael Bay who I, who I try to not talk about as much as humanly possible. And 13 Hours, I, I, can, I can say now that I actually think this is Michael Bay's best film which isn't really saying a great deal but and what interested me in it was I could see how it was being made for its audience and of course Benghazi has become a kind of a modern Watergate in some in, in some circles most notably Fox News they seem to be on and on and on about it um, and of course this was an election year where you have the kind of the, the, the grand villain behind the disaster of Benghazi is, is Hillary Clinton so what better time to bring out a film showing supposedly one of her greatest failings as a politician in an election year and this is a film that revels in the heroism of americans the kind of the outnumbered team fight off wave after wave of jihadists as the powers that be squabble over how to best help them and yes obviously fox news is i'm sorry the film sorry is uh, most notably pointing the finger at hillary clinton 
Bay as to be expected makes 13 hours into a kinetic audio visual or sort of canted angle slow motion explosions and semi homoerotic fetishization of muscular bearded super soldiers saving bureaucrats from their liberal inertia. What did surprise me was how although the film doesn't explicitly name names the way in which the crisis unfolds really says everything because no one who is apparently in charge knows what to do or who to talk to. But I cannot deny the film did grip me. It was incredibly scary, I found, and genuinely terrifying in places. You can take, just remove the politics from Benghazi and what you do have is basically a fight for survival. It's a modern day kind of Zulu type of film, I suppose. We seem to have entered an age where the truth is secondary to feeling. Many people going into this film were all already made up their minds who was to blame to Benghazi. And the film does nothing really to objectively show the situation. From my own research, I actually found out that it was the Republicans themselves who had blocked um, a bill to improve security at embassies around the world. None of that's mentioned, of course, and, and I, I didn't expect it to be. In terms of a bulls out action film, I can't deny I was quite gripped by the film. Um, it, I suppose, in a way, it's, it's become sort of a guilty pleasure for me. I, I haven't seen it since I saw it. I don't know when I will go back to it. Um, but I, I, I was moved by it as well um, when some of the, the characters are killed. It, yeah, g genuinely, I, I, I felt incredibly sorry for them um, that they had been kind of placed in that situation. Because I suppose when there is a horde of jihadists coming at you, you don't really care about politics. You just care about living. And I, I think from that perspective, the urgency of the situation and Michael Bay's directorial style worked quite well for me. It was far from a masterpiece, but perhaps I would suggest to people if you, you know, if you don't like Michael Bay films or you kind of have quite a dismissive attitude, perhaps kind of have a look at this film. It isn't as moronically stupid as his other works, and uh, and like I said, I, I think it's probably Michael Bay's best film. Um, which isn't saying a great deal. I'm yet to see Pain Game. Uh, Joachim has been on at me to see that and he kindly sent it to me. So I, I do need to watch that. But um, yeah, uh, I, it, I, we will see if Pain and Gain um, dethrones 13 Hours as the best Michael Bay film. Yeah, and I'll just leave that one there, there I think. Okay, so with, I suppose, the interesting guilty pleasure oddity out the way, um, we have to look at the duds of the year and by far in advance the worst film I saw all year was the utter catastrophe that was Don Cheadle's Miles, a frankly awful snapshot in the life of the seminal jazz musician Miles Davis. As producer, writer, director and lead actor the buck firmly stops with Cheadle himself. Clearly as a serious artist this is Cheadle's passion project, partly funded by the public. He clearly felt this film needed to be made, and oh how wrong he was. This film is not a biotic, it's more of a day in the life of a pain in the ass. Cheadle clearly loves Davis and loves being him, and for some reason on the evidence that we see in this film, the man was a complete and utter idiot. 
At one stage, Cheadle even takes time out of the film to remind us there is more to Davis than just a kind of blue. And during one scene in which he is rolling, he and a Rolling Stone journalist played by Ewan McGregor, who appears to be as baffled as to what he's doing in the film as we are, they go to a student's house to buy some coke, where a strung out girl lying on a bed nonchalantly hums the first bars of that Anne Mark album to demonstrate that is the one she likes best. It's a breaking the fourth wall moment. A knowing nod from Cheadle to you that he knows, as you do, that there's more to gene, to the genius of Miles Davis than just a kind of blue. And shame on those people who just owned a kind of blue, because obviously we all know that there's so many classics under there that you've probably never heard of, that you've probably got the really super rare vinyl that Don Cheadle's got as well. It's annoying, smug, and indicative of how fi this film is confused. I didn't actually know who it was being made for. Obviously, it was being made for Don Cheadle, but for Miles Davis fans, it says nothing than the fact that the man was a complete and utter prick. The film's MacGuffin of sorts is that the evil record company have got hold of some tapes and Davis wants them back. And this actually ends in a shootout in which Miles takes one in the leg. Now, did this actually happen? Well, I don't think, I don't demand that my film full of facts and I, I do accept that creatist license is, is imperative when you're making biopics but this is just plain simply bollocks it's not funny it's not interesting and just when the film couldn't get any more worse it actually ends with him on stage as Miles Davis playing in a contemporary concert over the end credits it's absolutely utterly ridiculous it's absolutely tragic and I think Cheadle should personally reimburse everyone who funded this film from the public because they have contributed to one of the biggest cinematic turds that has ever offended my eyes. Nicholas Winding reference The Neon Demon was another film that I actually despised more than I can possibly think. Every single cliche about the fashion industry and modelling wrapped up in a kind of cannibal David Lynch thing. I don't know what on earth was going on. It was absolutely awful. Um, such a disappointment. Um, go, going from Valhalla Rising Drive, and then he's just been on this, he's been on a downward spiral with Only God Forgives, and and now this. I, I it's such a disappointment to me. I'm sure some people are gonna kind of he's gonna be the new David Lynch style auteur. I suppose they're gonna absolutely lap up everything he does. Um, I don't know, I think he needs to go back to the drawing board. In fact, he doesn't, he still manages to make films, he's still obviously getting funding to do this kind of stuff, but I, I've completely lost interest in him at the moment. Um, it's, it's when I kind of had my divorce from Lars von Trier, I just had to wave the white flag um, at Antichrist, and I was like, I, I, we're done for a while, I can't be done with it, and I'm done with Nicholas Rinding Refn for a while. Um, he needs a decent script, or, or just at least an idea that's actually interesting and uh, kind of start from there. But they were the films I hated most this year. I suppose we have to kind of talk about the whole kind of superhero films because there seemed to be another deluge of them this year. And, and the one that everyone was getting ridiculously excited about was, of course, Batman versus Superman as was I. I wasn't a massive fan of Man and Steel, uh, Man of Steel, sorry, as you, you, you may have heard in the episode I did on it, but I do like Zack Snyder, and I, for one, wasn't particularly bothered that Ben Affleck was gonna be Bruce Wayne, because I really like Ben Affleck as well. So, I was slightly confused, really, because I was reliably informed 10 minutes after the release of Batman v Superman by Warner Brothers 
that a Blu-ray release would be coming out with extra footage that would make the film a far more enriching experience. So I held out and I watched the director's cut or the ultimate edition where it was on Blu-ray. And about an hour into Batman Superman, I checked how long was left and I actually felt a wave of complete and utter horror that I had another hour and 40 minutes to go because quite frankly, the film was one of the dullest, baffling and annoying ones I saw all year. I say annoying because quite literally, I cannot stand Jesse Eisenberg in any shape or form. Clearly his role on the social network has inspired a kind of reboot of Lex Luthor in the form of a young entrepreneur type. This tragically underwritten, poorly conceived character isn't helped by Eisenberg turning up the ham factor to a factor of 10. He isn't funny, scary, or in the least bit convincing as a villain. In fact, whatever the, the master plan was, I had long given up pretending to care. It seemed only to make the film louder and louder and louder. Now, I love testing my home cinema, but when you are seriously concerned that even at the low volume you're inflicting hearing loss on yourself, there comes a time when even the most dedicated home cinema enthusiast has to wave the white flag. Of course, Batman had a mountain to climb after the Dark Knight films, and happily, Affleck is more than up to the task. We don't need an origin story again, and I, for one, am actually quite glad we don't have... I, I'm actually quite glad we didn't have a lead-in Batman film before this, but at the very least, the film should be fun. These are two titans of the comic book world, the, the diamonds in the crown of DC, and they deserved a film, I think, that was a more, fitical, more fitting for the characters than this bloated abomination. This is going to be unleashing a new phase in the DC cinematic universe, complete with Wonder Woman getting some airtime and some... And the mantra for them seems to be big, dark and scary. Alack, it's just not very clever. It offers and says nothing of the noise and confusion it creates. The film's shallowness is ultimately reflected in its lead character, who despite the solid performances all around, are given little to do more than just look moody and smash stuff up. I think Snyder is a massively underrated director. He is often wrongly accused, I think, of going for style over substance. And I actually think he is a capable a, a director who really can add substance to genres that we typically lean towards being more style friendly. And in this film, he's in a kind of a no man's land. The weight he tries to infuse into his shot and the emotional beats he tries to achieve fail because fundamentally, this is a profoundly hollow experience. It's made its characters the selling point, yet forgotten to make you actually care about them beyond their names. And I hope sincerely that DC ups its game because for one, I'm happy with all the casting choices, Eisenberg aside, but just give me something a little bit more than this. I didn't uh, see the Suicide Squad either. Um, I think I was a bit kind of superheroed out and when I was kind of hearing slightly um, less than positive reviews of the film I decided to give it a swerve. Which kind of brings me on to the world of Marvel really because things kicked off the year with Captain America Civil War and this was a first for me in terms of a viewing experience because I watched it with two children, my girlfriends in fact, and part of the fun I suppose was experiencing with them. And you know, I did enjoy our day out and I enjoyed watching the film and they seemed to kind of get a lot more out of it than I did. But everything was fine with Captain America Civil War and to actually watch it again and then I was hit with a rather nagging doubt that Marvel has entered such a comfort zone that their films have become nothing more than product, product to sell comics, action figures, games, whatever, you name it, these films are there to sell it. And arguably it is the medium of TV where they're taking the most risks. Um, with series like Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, um, the incredibly violent Daredevil. And their, their film output have become, I think, quite bog standard. I've become to 
wonder at what point are people going to kind of wise up to this and kind of wave the white flag and check out. And nothing really bad happens in Civil War because Marvel doesn't want to kill any of its characters because that's bad for business. The film's climactic airport fight actually annoyed me. It annoyed me because it was obviously a massive CGI segment, yet with all the money spent, it still looked terrible, I thought. Um, with the exception of The Winter Soldier, these films are saying nothing about the wider world and nothing outside of the self-contained, superficial world they present. Lip service is paid to the civilian death toll of their action, yet the Marvel Universe is virtually immune from wider consequence of its characters because their creative overlords, i.e. Disney and the money people, cannot do anything of interest with the characters so as not to potentially ruin any financial returns. For all its apparent danger, the Marvel Universe is one of the safest places in cinema. And, and I want these films to be fun, but they're increasingly becoming something of a chore. This brings me on to Doctor Strange. Now, I love Benedict Cumberbatch and I love Mads Mikkelsen, and Doctor Strange is kind of a cool character. But what I don't really like is having to watch The Matrix again. And yes, this film had its moments and some quite inventive visual flourishes. But again, it was an overwhelming sense of safety about Doctor Strange and the purpose of this film. We are, of course, heading to Infinity Wars. And this is merely a way of getting Doctor Strange into the Marvel Universe. I didn't actually detect any kind of peril in this film again either, which just seems so safe. Now, everyone loved Deadpool. It was an unexpected massive hit and pops for making an adult-themed superhero film. But whilst I liked it, and don't get me wrong, I'm really looking forward to these films, but kind of Deadpool is kind of stuck in the world of Fox. He can't really interact with the rest of the Marvel Universe due to rights issues. And I think he could possibly team up with the X-Men, but we'll have to wait and see, which does bring me on to X-Men Apocalypse. And I hated this film quite violently. I can't be bothered going into the whys of it, but I realised this film was total garbage when if during the course of your film you take time out of your narrative to show a scene that features characters leaving a cinema having watched Return of the Jedi, idly gossiping that the third film in a series is typically the worst, you have clearly made an utterly terrible piece of detestable garbage. Now onto the most depressing category, this is the, the films that I found mildly disappointing. Um, Steven Spielberg's The BFG was a vigil delight and Michael uh, Ryan's voicing the Mark Rylance sorry voicing the BFG worked perfectly well and I was totally in into it until the last half hour which has to be bar none the worst final act I have seen in film in a long time in fact it was so bad I actually watched the last half hour again to see if I'd actually missed something and all it did was confirm how utterly awful it was another mild disappointment was Pablo Aaron's The Club a film about a house for some disgraced priests and a former nun the club's intriguing premise was wasted with another terrible concluding act and muddled morality Midnight Special was okay I guess but ultimately this film felt like it was trying to suggest more than it was ever interested in actually explaining. Although I did enjoy the ending, it felt that the entire plot of the point of the film was just to set up without really paying much attention to why it was supposed to mean anything in the first place. Tale of Tales was billed as an art house avant-garde epic, and for a film that's supposed to be so memorable and amazing, I really don't remember that much of it in the first place. 
Whit Stillman's love and friendship seem to be adored by critics, yet for me never really engaged in any way whatsoever. I love Kate Beckinsale, I think she should stop doing underworld moves and concentrate more on actually fletching her considerable acting skills. Only this film felt completely flat for me, I found it quite confusing at times, mainly because I wasn't overly bothered by the characters, and I'm I'm sure I was supposed to find it funny and I simply didn't, and just at over an hour and a half I was quite honestly bored senseless. And indeed, it was pretty much the theme of 2016, which was just me going, yeah, that was okay, and not really reacting too positively to most of what I saw. Aside from the films that I mentioned that I hated, most felt very average and it's possibly the reason why I found myself watching so many. I seemed to be on a quest to find a film that would make me fall in love and I never quite found the one, which is a rather sad metaphor for some people's life I suppose. It's been hard to whittle down my list to 10, definitely my top two were the easiest pick, the rest they were somewhat harder. In many respects this was a year about rediscovering what I love about cinema. I found myself watching a lot of older films, binge watching Italian neorealism and and those of the American New Wave. I think it's part down to the current cultural climate. I keep being informed that film is now on TV and what I think this means is that the quality of television now matches film. Yet what I found about a great deal many films was just how uncinematic they were. Love and Friendship for example could have easily been a one-off BBC special as is in the likes of Spotlight or The Big Short, the two big message films of your. What was remarkable about them was how utterly unremarkable they were aesthetically. Although I was not a great fan of Terence Malick's Knight of Cups, at least it was a film that could actually be appreciated in the fact that it was a uniquely cinematic experience. Its style may have trumped its content, at least the style was to a degree enough of a hook to keep me interested. The most notable example of this had to be The Revenant, I liked The Revenant for sure, it's a story that neither felt new or particularly gripping to me but by god this was easily the best directed piece of cinema I saw all year. It does and went places that only film can do and was made to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I didn't really care about my reservations about its plot, moreover I just wanted to watch and marvel at it over and over and I think it would be a work that I go back to a great deal. I'm not really at present that bothered about a perfect marriage between style and content. Just give me something that makes me want to go to the cinema and at least leave me thinking the experience of seeing it in the cinema was the absolute best place to have watched it. With Netflix and Amazon fast taking over the world, many films are now finding their way onto these platforms. For some struggling for distribution this is a godsend for sure but my aim for 2017 is to go to the cinema itself more than ever and I also in doing so I want to be rewarded with cinematic experiences so I think my list for 2016 does reflect a certain nostalgia and reverence for films that I felt reminded me or enthused my love of cinema it's no surprise that really one film in my top 10 was a documentary about a director writing a book about another director which I saw at the cinema just so I could see clips from the films that I have to date only seen at home and I think we can probably guess what that film is if you listen to this podcast. So before I get to my top 10 I just want to do a rundown of the almosts and I'll kick things off with Arrival. Now I really like Dennis Villeneuve's work today unlike most though however I was not a fan of Sicario Uh, I thought the film's treatment of its lead character was frankly terrible and I both mean in terms of the never-ending cliches used in relation to her and the fact that in reality the only reason that the Emily Blunt character is actually in the film in the first place was to simply make things happen for other people 
whilst being masqueraded as the lead in the film. However, Arrival was billed as this year's Thinking Man's science fiction film. And of course, that means invoking 2001 A Space Odyssey, which of course is total bollocks. I hate it when people do that. As, as soon as a film is slightly more cerebral, they instantly equate it to being the new 2001. I really wish they would stop. Anyway, despite featuring Jeremy Renner, an actor who I'm, I think he's actually as confused as us as to how his career has been so successful. I was actually quite hopeful for Arrival. Um, Amy Adams is certainly one of my favourite favorite actresses currently working at the moment. And everything I heard and read, and even when I listened to the soundtrack of the film before I saw it, led me to believe I was going to really like it. And for about 40 minutes, I loved Arrival. There was genuine mystery here. The alien ship with its weird gravity and those long menacing corridors and the frankly ever so slightly scary long lingered visitors from another world. I particularly like Yonish Johansson's soundtrack that infused the imagery with both wonder and a kind of nagging sense of dread. Now the imagery and the atmosphere was to me reminiscent of a film like The Day the Earth Still uh, the day the earth stood still and then the 1950s war of the worlds and interwoven into this was some kind of Terence Malick like imagery or some kind of Tarkovsky moments in the sequences between Amy Adams and her dying daughter and I realised even just saying that I've walked into the same cliche of decrying people who compare any cerebral science fiction film to 2001 because obviously when you have um longing shots of people looking over sea, over the sea and muttering things that's obviously something Terence Malick does so I do apologize for kind of reverting to my own kind of cliche use of comparison there however after such an interesting premise however arrival very quickly began to unravel my eyes began their upward journey into the back of my head as the amount of military interference in the film began to increase various stern looking CII tapes muttering lines like the president wants to know or how do we know they aren't hostile then of course those pesky Chinese are pointing every communist gun at the spaceship until it goes away or one of the spaceships I guess I should say now given the premise of the film is understanding language and despite a global effort to figure out what the visitors are trying to say the Chinese give them quite a stark choice which is leave now or we're going to fire but if the whole point of the film is understanding that the people the alien race and the earth folk don't speak the same language it seems slightly ridiculous to issue an ultimatum however i think it got even more ridiculous when two soldiers watching a kind of conspiracy webcast thing that looked like some looked like a pastiche of info wars i can't remember the guy's name the absolute buffoon that runs that they decide that the best thing to do is obviously to blow up the aliens and yes blow up those aliens who clearly are vastly technologically superior to anyone we've ever encountered before but you know that's the best thing to do in this situation is because some mad conspiracy theorist says they're here to, to enslave us let's try and start a war with them that it makes perfect sense to me now admittedly this did create some genuine tension but it was completely unnecessary because really what the film is about is the importance of communication and free will if we knew our future would be changed to present, even if we knew we would be kind of encountering great sorrow, would the journey of happiness to get there be worth it? However, this intriguing premise was largely squandered by all the nonsense military stuff. There was a chance, I thought, for genuinely something quite cerebral. Our 
a la 2001 Space Odyssey. Instead, Arrival felt like a hodgepodge of something that was trying to be incredibly intellectual, but also kind of trying to revert to these popular stereotypes you often see in Alien Arriving on Earth films. It does so much right for me, but fell well short of being great due to its transgressions. And that all being said, I thought the film was superbly directed and Amy Adams was was brilliant in it and she's like I said she's definitely one of my favorite acts actresses working at the moment but you know typically Jeremy Renner you, you just you are just so very very dull but perhaps when I go back and watch Arrival again because I do want to watch the film again I, I did have an urge to see it again perhaps I can kind of focus more on its positive points but I was a little bit disappointed and it's one of those really where it's trying to wish wishing a film to be something it isn't it's completely pointless but I think like in, in, in instances like this you really can't help doing it another film that I really enjoyed was a Hugh Grant Meryl Streep film which was Florence Foster Jenkins about the 1930s opera singer who was absolutely terrible but kind of beloved by everyone at the time and I really felt this film was quite charming the documentary Wiener about the politician Anthony was cringeworthy at times and I kind of really wanted to root for this guy until I actually read what he had done after the film which to be brutally honest with you this guy was an absolute douchebag it was it was kind of Alan Partridge-esque the uh utter failures he seemed to bring about on himself but it was a ridiculously enjoyable film it kind of reminded me of um Alex Gibney's Clark Nine and the Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer which um Elliot Spitzer is far more likable I think and far more um sympathetic than this guy ever will be but I don't think we'll be hearing anything for him for a very long time which on the basis of having seen this film I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing Things to Come, which was an Isabella Hubert film, which I think featured my, uh, probably my favourite character I saw all year. And it's, it's a, a really likeable and charming character that she plays, this kind of uh, school teacher who gets, um, who, whose husband decides that he's going to split up with her. And she kind of goes on this kind of journey of self-discovery but it's not it's, it doesn't it seems to avoid all the kind of normal cliches and it, I just genuinely liked hanging out of that character for an hour and 40 minutes so definitely have a look at that um Amolicia which was the Charlie new Charlie Kaufman film that was in my top 10 for quite a while um was um dislodged by a couple of recent viewings but getting over the concept of the fact that it features puppets and uh at times having quite graphic sex this was certainly no team america world police it was a genuinely really interesting and inventive film um, another one that i really liked was author the jt Leroy story which was a documentary about a literary hoax that occurred um, in the late 90s and into the early part of the years and in this kind of celebrity obsessed culture and the liberal celebrity culture which just loves to attach itself to various causes you can see just the very worst aspects of this coming out just cringing at the likes of Winona Ryder declaring their love for this person who's a complete fabrication just because this person has this kind of identity politics story going on it's a re it's just cringeworthy and depressing author like JT Leroy's story, but I really, really did enjoy it quite a lot. Mustang was a Turkish film I saw about a group of girls 
um, living in quite a strict household with their father. It was kind of... Rem- I really enjoyed it until I remembered the virgin suicides. And then when I kind of started to make the comparisons, it did just feel like... Or not so much a remake of the virgin suicide, but it, it certainly ha- it played the same kind of beats. And I kind of marked it down a little bit for that. But on the whole, um, a really interesting, um, quite moving film. The Coen brothers, I think, have made their best film in quite a long time with Hail Caesar. This genuinely made me laugh a lot. Um, the brilliant documentary about Brian De Palma as well, um, simply called De Palma, obviously. Uh, that was a really interesting, fascinating look at someone who... There's a certain element of you either love or hate Brian De Palma. And I think I love him in a way. I, I do really, really enjoy it. And watching this documentary actually reminded me of how many films... Um, he's made that I do like but that he, he seems to be this person who encourages some really interesting debates you know something there is you have to say that he's definitely an auteur he certainly has a vision yet for many it's a vision that they find quite seedy I mean there's no denying that he does have a thing for the ladies and it's definitely I suppose invites criticisms of misogyny and all that kind of thing but he is definitely an artist he's one of the most um, you know notable directors to come out of the new Hollywood movement. So, yeah, I, I really did enjoy that. Atom McGoyan's, uh Remember was a film which kind of came out of nowhere, really, and completely blew me away, which is a story of a Auschwitz concentration camp survivor who is suffering from dementia who kind of goes on this journey of revenge across America um, because he believes that a former prison guard is alive and well and his idea is basically to kill him whilst he's suffering from this and then obviously he won't remember what he's done. Um, A really, really interesting film. Um, I think again on another day and another mood this could have easily have made my top 10 Uh, and Dipan as well which was uh, Jack Odard's latest film which his recent filmography from the Beat My Heart skipped A Prophet and Rust and Bone up to this, I have to say, I think is pro- is exemplary. I just love what he's doing. He has a really, really unique voice, I think, and is in his recent films, I think he's got into such a good groove of making some just thoroughly entertaining and thoughtful films. I mean, Rust and Bone is one of my favourite films of the decade and he kind of continues that here and again it's another one where I think on another day I might have been um, inclined to put it in my top 10. Um, It does I suppose kind of deal with the idea of immigration and migration. Um, It follows a former Tamil Tiger soldier who comes to France claiming political asylum but it's just so interesting and so inventive and I think it did win um, the 2015 Cannes Film Festival Award, and it's a, a worthy winner, I feel. Um, very interesting. I was completely gripped by it. Sometimes these films do play into the fantasy realm a little bit, um, certainly a profit did. And this one, I think, does to the pushes the point of believability, I found. And I, I guess that was the thing that kind of gave me a little bit of distance from truly loving it, although I, I certainly did thoroughly enjoy it and it's a worthy addition to his filmography um it wasn't much of a box office success as well and it, it it's interesting because apparently his original intention when he made this film was to kind of do a variation of straw dogs which i i only just i've only just recently found out and um 
I, I'm not sure I can entirely see how he got from that to this, but it's certainly very interesting. And if he wants to go and um, pursue, pursue that as a film idea, I'd be very much intrigued to see it, but definitely well worth having a look. Okay, so without any further ado, I'm going to get on and have a look at my top 10. Now, these are in no particular order until the top two. So, um, one of the films which made it was the documentary Hitchcock Truffaut. Now, I've already spoken about this um, earlier on last year, so I would, a bit of a cop out, I'm not going to talk about it again because there's an entire podcast episode dedicated. So if you want to hear my thoughts on Hitchcock Truffaut, go back and listen to that. You're running now. Okay, fine. In 1966, Francois Truffaut published a series of in-depth conversations with Alfred Hitchcock about his entire body of work. Truffaut, half Hitchcock's age, was already an internationally renowned filmmaker, and he wanted to free Hitchcock from his reputation as a light entertainer. It conclusively changed people's opinions about Hitchcock. It was a director talking about his own work in a way that was utterly unpretentious. You know, they were talking about the craft. Seven days. Seventy setups. And I shot some of it in slow motion. Where it sort of lays out all of the cutting pattern, contextualizing what the work of a director truly is. You know, I had a paperback. It's not even a book anymore. It's like a stack of papers. Truffaut Hitchcock book was really revolutionary. We became radicalized as movie makers. It was almost as if somebody had taken a weight off our shoulders and said, yes, we can embrace this, we could go. I have a favorite little saying to myself, logic is dull. This is somebody whose mind is racing, filled with ideas. That's why we refer to him all the time. He's making floors out of glass so you can show the apartment above. Things that make cinema magic. I'm never satisfied with the ordinary. I've tried to play the audience like an organ. You know, there are certain rules, and he destroyed all those rules. interested in the audience. Obviously, they're going to sit there and say, show me. I know what's coming next. <laughs> I have to say, do you? Jim, whatever I do, I do it to protect you. So you understand? I understand. Okay, so the next film that was on my list was Rogue One. And again, I've already spoken about it on the last episode. So um, if you want to hear my thoughts on that, go back and give that one a listen. Um, I've seen it again since, and I had a thoroughly great time with it again. Um, I still found it to be one of one of the most exciting and fun trips I had to the cinema. It seems that uh, now that quite a few people have kind of caught up with it, um, the reaction to it seems, uh, on the whole, as far as I can gauge, seems quite 
underwhelmed by it. Um, I've heard lots of people kind of decry the fact that it's not a Star Wars film, even more so actually. And I, I'm still a little bit confused as to what this means. I, I think we should look at Star Wars being an, an evolving concept as opposed to kind of um, saddling it with too many conventions. But with those two out in the way, they're films which I've already spoken about. I'm going to get into the ones that I haven't actually spoken about. And now it's on to the ones I haven't discussed. And first up is Sebastian Shipper's Victoria. We have to do something. Please, can, can you help us? You can. Yeah? No problem. I'm the big driver. Yeah. I went to Berlin a couple of years ago and I kind of fell in love with the city for many reasons, from the architecture to the nightlife. And I was admittedly kind of drawn to the film just from the fact that it consisted of a girl, leave the titular in Victoria, who leaves a nightclubs, meets some guys and agrees to rob a bank that very same night. It sounds utterly and totally ridiculous. Yet Victoria has one key element that once you get your head around, the whole fuck film kind of makes sense. And that element is time and how in a filmic context we perceive it. Victoria runs at about two hours and 20 minutes, which is slightly longer than the average running time for most multiplex friendly affairs. What makes Victoria slightly different from most films, however, in fact, it actually makes it somewhat unique I suppose is that it unfolds in real time and is filmed in one continuous shot. Now going in I was skeptical. What I asked was the point in using one continual shot when such an approach would severely limit just about every aesthetic choice you can make in the film so you wouldn't be able to cut in or use any other device really or you know, close-ups, medium close-ups, you know, any kind of editing to tell the story and I could not really detach myself that the whole thing was something of a no novelty. It seemed it sounded like the kind of thing, you, an idea that you have at university and you think you're really clever for dreaming up. However, you cannot but love the long take 
I still recall um, the standout of True Detective Season 1 has probably one of the most incredible sequences that I've ever seen um, in film or in television and I think it lasted something like 10 minutes but an entire film it seems something of a stretch. Well I was entirely wrong because I would contest that not only was this approach completely necessary for Victoria but quite simply the film would not work without it. We all have to suspend our disbelief when we watch films to an extent that we are expected to buy into a girl meeting a group of guys she doesn't know, agreeing to rob a bank and then become emotionally attached to one of them, all in the space of 2 hours and 20 minutes. It is, even by film standards, a big ask and for the first 45 minutes of Victoria, I was, to be totally honest, finding the film slightly ridiculous. It was actually annoying me to a degree and I felt that in some ways it was kind of slightly juvenile, boring and un utterly unnecessary. It normally takes me about 10 minutes to decide whether I'm going to like or film or not. And this isn't a rule that I've obviously set in stone, but it's not a pretty good indicator. Um, here, however, the film's aesthetic, this continual shot, kept me intrigued and I seemed to find myself increasingly ignoring the flaws that I was finding with Victoria. The lead character, Victoria, obviously seemed a little bit dopey to me. I could not see her motivation wanting to join these guys who frankly seemed like a bunch of idiots. The lead character, um, so the main male in the film, um, Sonny, played by Frederick Lowe, I found him a little bit creepy. Um, he was extremely unlikable and it was hard for me to really kind of work out what he wanted. Indeed, the film had an air of the sinister about and I couldn't really connect with Victoria as a person and I couldn't really care for her well-being either. And then two things happen. Fine. Firstly, I realised that film in time is a strange thing. It is prolonged, compressed, even rearranged. And we will readily accept characters developing in all manner of ways over the given time of a film. 45 minutes is a long time to establish character. And once Victoria had calmed down a bit after its first act, I became consciously aware, despite being 45 minutes in, the exact same time had taken place in this girl's life. And of course it is a very obvious thing to comment on, but within the context of a film, seldom will we conscience, consciously ascribe so much attention to time unless it is made explicit that either time is of an essence or a significant period of time has transpired, or we are seeing events in the past. Here we are always in the moment. Can a character in the space of 45 minutes go from leaving a club to becoming involved with a group about to rob a bank and begin to form an emotional attachment to one of them? And although this happens incrementally, it still takes a hefty degree of suspension of disbelief to accept that she could. However, despite taking place in real time, you have to remember this is very much a film and in that context, it's entirely plausible that all this could happen to someone. Of course someone can go from leaving a nightclub to starting to be attracted to someone to wanting a bank in 45 minutes. That, it we see that happening in film all the time, yet, yet because time in Victoria is actual, it kind of feels like the film's been going on for a lot longer than it has. As if what's actually taken, taken place in the film has actually occurred over a far longer period of time. Now the fact that the film is quite long feels strangely apart from the actual time experienced by the character. 
look at the time that's elapsed on your Blu-ray player and that is the exact amount of time that has been going on in the film. And it's actually a counter, as it were, for how long Victoria has known these guys. Yet because of the time frame in which films normally take place, this almost doesn't tally with what you are seeing on screen. It's a long film, but a short space of time in someone's actual life. And secondly, the other factor playing in, because it's in this one take, you're never distracted by close-ups or the camera getting a reaction shot or POVs or anything like that or changing the angles. It just sits there and lets you watch. And the marriage of this lack of editing in the real time that's elapsing works perfectly. Now, Victoria is an exercise in what film can do. And it's by no means a perfect film for me by any stretch of the imagination. I do think its biggest flaw is the characters. I don't necessarily think it's the performances. I just think it's the characters. They did kind of annoy me and I didn't find myself really connecting with Victoria a great deal. Although I, yeah, I was kind of bothered by what, what kind of where she ends up at the film. The thrilling aspect of this film is the, obviously the fact it's being filmed in one shot. You feel strangely conspiratorial as to what is going on. Like it's one continual POV shot from a mute character. It reminded me in a way of the work of Gaspar Noé and kind of it's unflinched the way the kind of the camera is unflinching and ever present. And you are kind of slap bang in the in the action. And if you've seen Love, um, you're certainly too far placed in the action for my concerns. But yes, it is kind of ridiculous. Yet Victoria is compelling and grueling to watch. And crucially, there are consequences to what happens in this film. This isn't Victoria isn't a fantasy. Her off-the-cuff decision to go along with the gang is an absolutely terrible one. And this isn't some kind of glorified kind of GoPro-type hymn to letting go and following your impulse and taking risks and all this. It is a melancholy and necessarily bleak film that literally shows someone ruin their life in real time. It is an absolutely staggering achievement, a one-take wonder that despite having characters who I did struggle to connect with, I can honestly say it's true one of a kind. Um, if you have any interest in the mechanics of film and just want something to watch something that's completely inspirational, Victoria is it. It tears up the rule books and does something which I've never seen before and I, I can't imagine it being bettered in many respects. So yeah, Victoria. Um, it's available now on Netflix, I believe, and I bought, I picked it up for £6 on Blu-ray in FOP in Manchester, so it's coming down in price a lot, so do pick it up and let me know what you think of it. Where's this? Are we at the North Pole? planet what a morning let's look at it together I'll take your hand Tell you the story of Belfast. But imagine Belfast, me, my world, a place where people moved in all directions. 
We made ships and linen and music and war and peace here. I was beautiful once, but I wonder if I became ugly. And if so, what made me ugly? amazed when I visit other cities uh, to see how unique the culture and the identities are. I live in Manchester and I consider it to be the best place to live on earth, which is probably a tad narrow-minded of me, but I'm always open to visiting other places and seeing what they are like. And I now have an Irish girlfriend and my interest in the country has peaked markedly. And it's what drew me to Mark Cousins' wonderfully invented film, I Am Belfast. Now, being the age of I am, Belfast has one connotation for me, which was the Troubles. I knew the city through handheld, grimy footage on the nightly news showing cars burning and crime scenes. It seemed like a fairly apocalyptic place to me. Actually, thinking about it now, it was already reminiscent of how Manchester was presented to us in the late 80s and early 90s. However, obviously there is more to Belfast than just the Troubles, and Cousins has made a beautiful meditative piece on the city that for all its eccentricity of the film was pretty much a success for me in every way. The film consists of a kind of dialogue between Cousins and Belfast itself who is embodied both on and off screen by an old lady in a kind of mythical, who becomes a kind of mythical 10,000 year old guide around the city. If that sounds a bit mental, it is, and like everything here I Am Belfast, this is a very idiosyncratic work. It doesn't have a plot to speak of in the traditional sense, it's part documentary, part, script, part scripted, and covers a variety of topics from the troubles to the construction of the Titanic. In short, I Am Belfast doesn't really adhere to any kind of rules. Now, Cousins has an uncanny knack of finding humanity in his work, and you can't help but find the film both life-affirming and hopeful. Northern Ireland is a complex issue that from the outside seems riddled with petty schisms, but that's religion for you. And in the film's last week sequence, or one of the last sequences, sorry, Cousins imagines the last bigot's funeral. It hints at Northern Ireland purged of its worst tendencies. It's a fantasy, of, of course it is, but a reality, well, possibly. And in a film where politics has been so divisive, hope is something which seems to be in short supply. But that doesn't mean that we should have it and strive for the best in all of us. Now, I am one of the most cynical people on earth, but yes, I still do hope for that things will get better. And Cousins is unashamed to say, to show this for the city he loved. And like all good films, I Am Belfast isn't just about its subject. Cousins has made a humane and touching film that is far wider in meaning and scope than the geographical confines the title of it suggests. Much like Man With A Coo Movie Camera, Cousins enjoys what you can do as film with a medium. 
it is a slightly disjointed film as a result that you feel Cousins is following whimsy but critically I don't ever think the film becomes too self-indulgent you simply go along the ride and it's an informative enjoyable and moving one and I really and on that basis I don't think you can have really many complaints about it I think possibly the film feels at times a little bit like an art installation but I definitely think it runs in a long line of the kind of the city symphony films and it's a genre which I would very much like to see uh, resurrected in fact I, I had something sort of in mind for Manchester from Victoria and I am Belfast whether or not I'd ever be able to pull off something so daring I don't know but definitely I am Belfast was um, a, a little odd eccentric film that just really struck with me and I've watched it a few times now and it, 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 I think it gets more rewarding on every viewing which is a, a completely positive thing to have to say about a film. Alright, I can get you guys a solid gig. Matinee tomorrow, doors at one, you guys are on a three. You're trapped. Things have gone south. It won't end well. You can't keep us here, man. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. Shoot who is left. Let him bleed. Get ready to run. Here we go. Careful now. This will be over soon, gentlemen. Every now and then, there is nothing better sitting back and watching a thoroughly unpleasant film. Last year, my favourite was It Follows, a thoroughly scary low-key thrill in which a terrifying spectre kills its victims after sexual contact. It was a brutal, mean, mean film that frankly scared the shit out of me. This year, another film has come along that has actually exactly the same effects on me, which was Jeremy Sawyer's Green Room, his follow-up to Blue Ruin, a film which I found to be a little bit average. But this is a near-perfect piece of modern-day horror. It is a film devoid of subtext and indeed subtlety that knows to focus its attention on creating the most unbearable tension and a sense of genuine fear for the cast. Roughly described as a punk band versus Nazis, Green Room is essentially a fight for survival in a god-awful music video in a music venue story in the middle of nowhere. Now, Sunia grew up watching exploitation films and himself was in a punk band and Green Room felt like an incredibly personal film from the off. It didn't seem to make any compromises. It's violent, it's bloody, it's nasty. And it's been made by someone who knows what nasty films should be like. And he's made a film which I think Green Room instantly appeals to those who like staying up late and watching nothing better than a group of kids trying to fight their way out of a room. Now our band of heroes, most notably one of them is uh, Anton Yeltsin, who um, it's just tragic seeing him um, and, and, and knowing what happened. You know, he was part of the kind of the celebrity culling that went on last year, and 
so young as well and such a talented actor, such a talented actor, sorry, but you basically watch him and his friends survive one onslaught after another of terrifying skinheads in a variety of bloody and violent ways. I was generally terrified for the cast in this film. The visceral nature of the violence with hideous knife attacks and snarling dogs and people trying to shoot them had me reaching for the pause button on several occasions. The violence was actually painful to watch. And as a point of comparison, I was thinking of Captain America's Civil War in which the entire set piece consisted of people trying not to hurt each other. Here the protagonists want to kill each other. You see horrible knife wounds on people's arms and various other hideous acts being committed. And it's as simple as that. It doesn't need or require any more explanation. And one of the, film, the issues that I have with a lot of modern films is overcomplication. Too many characters, too many subplots, too much emphasis on wooing audience with huge set pieces. Green Room is a simple film that tells a simple story and it's all the better for it. Patrick Stewart may be in the film but it doesn't seem like a distraction and that's a credit really to everybody involved. And that's not to say that Patrick isn't great in the film, it's very scary, it's John Luke Picard, I don't want to see him running a load of Nazis in the middle of the forest, the man needs a legacy but I'm not trying to kind of talk green room down by saying it's a simple film it is what it is and it's the type of films that children who aren't old enough to watch it should watch it jeremy saulers has made a true video nasty without stupid curses or demonic books and revenge seeking spirit he's just chucked a punk band in a building with some nazis and asked them to fight to the death and i loved it janus my island, my life, Isabel, my love, every day we spent together, one day there came a sudden cry, Isabel! For many years, we journeyed on. You have a very lovely daughter. Excuse me. My sister had a terrible tragedy. Her husband and their baby daughter were lost at sea. You would have been your girl's age by now. She doesn't belong to us. We can't keep her. It's her mother. <laughs> I'm her mother. You saw what we've done to her. One day, this will feel like a dream. I promise. The Light Between Oceans is the type of film that telegraphs a lot of things. And one of those was the inevitable critical mauling that received in some sectors. There were arguments that it was too melodramatic, that it was too pretty and too moralistic. And 
Respectively, I have to say to the detractors of The Light Between the Oceans that they have completely and utterly failed to realise that these are the film's greatest strengths. It is guilty of everything that is charged, but I don't think in any way, shape or form these are to its detriment. It revolves around the character of Tom, who has, is an Australian World War I veteran who comes home to Australia seeking solitude. He finds it taking a lighthouse keeper's job on a remote island. After several visits to the mainland, he meets and falls in love with and marries Isabel, played by Alyssa Vikander, and the pair return to the island to raise a family. After two miscarriages, the pair are left distraught. Then one day, as if by magic, a dinghy is washed up inside a dead man and a baby girl who is still alive. Tom wants to report the incident, but Isabel has other ideas. She wants to keep the child and raise it as their own. Tom is wrapped with guilt and over the course of the next few years, whilst raising child, is unable to hide the truth for much longer. Now, The Light Between Oceans is admittedly does somewhat push the boundaries of plausibility, but who really cares? Director Derek Kieranfortz, whose previous film, The Place Beyond the Pines, was a surprisingly in its scope for me, and this became, and it became slightly mirandering in places, I rather felt that it might be a film which over the course of the years becomes something of a classic. Here he has made an epic in the very classical sense. I was reminded of David Lean's Ryan's Daughter which told a rather simple love story in the most epic way one can ever imagine. The Light Between Oceans is a somewhat similar type of experience. Firstly its use of vocations is incredible. Kieran director Andrew Akapor may not be subtle in their juxtaposition of wide vistas of raging seas and the parallels between the innermost turmoil of the characters, but it is simply stunning to watch. I don't care that the film telegraphs its emotional beats well in advance because for me they really did work. In reality it takes about 45 minutes for the story to truly begin, but as it builds and the stake rise I actually felt that it stuck a perfect balance between schlock and genuinely effective melodrama. The central performances are all superb, and they need to be, the script is not subtle, and in lesser hands, this could fall into a Mills and Boone's tedium quite early on. Yet all concerned appear to understand that in order to sell melodrama, you need to embrace it wholeheartedly. The film's structure too repeatedly pulls at the heartstring, and along with Alexander Duplass' score, why I think critics have riled against the films that Light Between Oceans is simply not hip enough. Rather than being an exercise in messages, is more concerned with emotional manipulation, and for me, it is all the better for that. Again, it comes back to my desire to have genuine cinematic experiences at the moment, and I felt the comparisons between Ryan's daughters were very apt. Ryan's daughter came out in an age when Hollywood was king again; the the auteur had taken over with their 16 millimeter cameras. Here, you have a 70 minutes to three-hour love story set in rural Ireland. It was made exactly at the wrong time in history. The Light Between Oceans arrived in a year where identity politics and gender identity and racial inequality all reigned supreme. You need only look what happened with the film The Birth of a Nation at Sundance to gauge what critics are looking for. Birth of a Nation received an a standing ovation, not uncommon of course, but this happened before the film had actually been shown. And that says everything you need to know about what critics are wanting from films at the moment. 
So along comes a big soppy melodrama. And of course people don't want to see it. Of course critics don't want to see this. And the light between oceans harkens back to big studio melodramatic epics that people stopped wanting long ago. Sadly, it was not a success. And I can see in the age of hipster start criticism that it'd be an easy target for sneers. Yeah, I sincerely believe its tractors are missing the point of what the light between the ocean is. It is a film made for cinema, and one that operates within the fantastical elements of what we so enjoy about cinema. Comparing it to the likes of Room, The Big Short and Spotlight, The Light Between Oceans is literally a world away cinematically. This is a gorgeous, stunning piece of work. Yes, I suppose its story might be a hard to believe even slightly eye rolling and yes it does tug at the emotional heartstrings but for me it worked perfectly i did not want it to end and even at two hours and 20 minutes this film could have gone on for another hour and a half and i would have still thoroughly been engrossed with it it possibly needs some time away from the critical mauling and the fact that it didn't do so well at the box office but i firmly believe it's going to be a film that people look back on in a few years and begin to appreciate. This is cassette one, track one, notes on blindness. July the 5th, 1984. What happens to the brain when optic stimulation ceases? I am concerned to understand blindness. The pictures in the gallery of my mind have dimmed somewhat, so I could no longer remember easily what my wife looked like or what my daughter Imogen looked like. I began to be terribly afraid that I would lose you. Everything was drifting away. How could this happen to me? Who had the right to deprive me of the sight of my children at Christmas time? kind of change in the state of my brain. There is something so totally purging about blindness that when either is destroyed or renewed. I think I am beginning to understand what it's like to be blind. Next up is a film that I heard so much about all year and I didn't go and watch it at the cinema and shame on me for not doing so because I really do feel like I've actually missed out now and it is 
Peter Middleton and James Spinney documentary drama Notes on Blindness. This is a remarkable film in so many respects. It's it's based around the life of the theologian John Hall, who at the age of 45 eventually went blind after many years of fading eyesight. And he recorded a series of verbal diary entries of his experience of which this excellent documentary have now been brought to life in one of the most imaginative and touching films that I saw all year. Going blind has often been a way of attaining wisdom in film. Think about how in cinema parodies, Frodo tells Salvatore that now that his eyes have gone, he sees better than ever. And, And then that's his kind of window onto how Salvatore should be living his life or in Zatoichi the blind swordsman he, he, he becomes able to chew through his assailants with even greater ease his apparent blindness gives him extrasensory skills that elevate his fighting ability to beyond anyone who can come near him or the the book of Eli or something like that which kind of treads along a similar path in cinema, it is often a vehicle by which we discover a character's true vision. Those who become blind are actually able to see with far more wisdom and insight that has gone before. Now, outside the construct of film, I have never read or heard anyone who actually has gone on to say that going blind has somehow given them a greater vision to see what's going on in the world. That was until Notes on Blindness because this documentary is revelatory to me in the way it uses recordings made by John Hall and his wife but mainly Hall himself and have actors lip sync his words in a series of scenes that bring to life the inner thoughts of Hall and how he perceives the understanding of what is happening to him. It makes for some surreal moments. In one instance Hall describes how rain and the sound of rain helps him formulate an idea of the world around him. So what we have is a scene in which we see rain falling in a room and how those sounds give him a three-dimensional perception of what was going on. We see him, we also have some truly touching moments in which Hall is playing and holding his young son. And what makes the scene so sad is the fact that Hall can't actually see his son, yet we can. And it's one of those really simple moments that we've seen splattered all over Facebook and Instagram and, and whatnot of someone holding up their child. But imagine being in a situation where the person holding that child and the person who is communicating with that child and interacting with it can't actually see them. And what you get is a kind of the fact that you're being allowed to witness a moment between a father and son that sadly the father will not ever really be able to truly see as it were although he can appreciate what's happening on those moments and I found this to be profoundly moving and there is a mixture of drama and documentary about it and I think it actually plays better for me as a drama that does for a documentary because I mean at times even this film evokes horror films like The Shining or science fiction such as Blade Runner I suppose the most meaningful moments of it come from from when Hall tries to recollect as his vision goes his understanding of the real world 
He struggles to remember what his wife looks like or his child's face or various everyday objects. And his narration is never angry or better or bitter, sorry. Instead, Hall describes with great lucidity and honesty how he has come to understand, accept and ultimately embrace, albeit reluctantly, I suppose, what has happened to him. In the, and he, in his own words, he says, now, why have I got it? But what am I going to do with it? And I was reminded of The Theory of Everything, the film about the life of Stephen Hawking, because although what is happening to both characters, or well, I suppose characters, or both people in these films, is that they have a horrendously depressing disability, but it never becomes about the disability, it becomes about overcoming it, and with the humanity and grace that they both find in this, and I found it truly humbling. Notes on Blindness isn't a depressing film. It one it is a film that ultimately extols the best in somebody. And as a piece of cinema, it works on every level. It is audibly a delight and visually also brilliantly acted by everyone who is lip-syncing um, Hall's words. Middleton and Spinney have created a film that crosses the boundary of drama and documentary in a thoroughly original hybrid way. Your position, please. Your position. Please, can you hold up okay. very quickly? How many people? We have a small children. Please, can you hold up? We are staying here. D, C, E, Z, K. Cosa ti senti? Non, non riesco a far entrare l'aria un po' capito? È un problema solamente che sia un po' ansioso, che sia un po' in tensione. Tutto questo ti lascia tanta rabbia, ti lascia un, un vuoto nello stomaco, un buco. Your position. My friend. Hello. Hello. 2016 was a year I remember for in terms of my own journey into film history, where I eventually got around to watching what are genuinely accepted to be many if not all the works of the Italian neorealist cycle of films from the 40s and 50s. One of the recurring themes of Italian neorealism was the focus placed on the lives of ordinary Italians, sometimes in remote communities and in many instances these films were seen through the eyes of children. In the context of the post-war world, there radiates from these films 
a sense that Italy is very much a country at a crossroads, economically ruined, the population pol politically teetering towards socialism and being ruthlessly put down by those who are in positions of power. And Italy in those films is a country very much with a future that seems very much unwritten. It felt strangely comforting to me whilst I was watching Geofranchi Ross's documentary Fire at Sea that I was taken back to my particular favourite films from the Italian Nero's period like The Terra Firma, The Bicycle Thieves and Stromboli. This documentary takes place on the remote island of Lapidusia here and the film shows an isolated community relying on the ancient trade of fishing that on the whims of nature can be shut down in an instant. And on the island we follow a young boy called Samuel, born into a family of fishermen. He spends his days learning English, playing with his friends, fighting off imaginary invasion fleets and making slings and branches. Yet Lepidusia is an island that is often first and tragically the last stop for many thousands of migrants and refugees heading towards Europe from Africa. The waters have claimed 15,000 lives and by day and night the Italian navy search these people out and are helped on land by a dedicated doctor. Rossi's film is a rare type of document documentary without any narration whatsoever and no appearance from the director at all. It's very much a film that took me by surprise given the subject matter. It took me about 20 minutes to tune into the film and realise that its approach to its subject was going to be far from conventional. Fire at Sea is a film about the refugee and migrant crisis and migrant crisis sorry but it is also a lot more and as a documentary very much has an approach that feels like it's been constructed as a normal fiction films hence i think why it reminded me so much of an italian neo-realist film anyone who knows documentary knows as i have discussed before that it's virtually impossible to present reality as it is and in most cases documentaries are trying to show you a very specific kind of reality that adheres to the director's vision for the film Documentaries treat, lie and manipulate you. It is the nature of the beast. Fire at Sea is different in some respects because I feel it was very constructed. I would not be surprised to learn that the film was extensively planned with specific scenes in mind, especially with regard to Samuel, although of course that's not to say there are clearly moments that have come about from the camera crew simply being around. The film achieved a degree of controversy upon its release as being about the migrant and refugee crisis but not really giving much voice to the people who it's apparently supposed to be looking at. Now, I've read criticisms that this is in some way the film's flaws, and I would perhaps imagine that the reason for this would be the accusation that Rossi was trying to funnel the tragedy through the experience of white Europeans, most notably the Doctor, who seems rightly as well to be heavily moved and traumatised from having to deal with a large amount of human suffering. His descriptions leave nothing to the imagination and are deeply upsetting. It's the same accusation or the same, I guess, posturing that I sometimes have with Vietnam movies. The war is nearly always presented as an American tragedy, and sadly 54,000 Americans did lose their life. Yet that pales into the comparison with the million Vietnamese that died and the chaos that was unleashed in that region for years, including, of course, what happened in Cambodia under Pol Pot. In the case of Fire at Sea, I don't think the migrant and refugees are given short shrift at all. Indeed, part of the humanity of the film lies in people like the Doctor, who, as a character, we instantly warm to him. He is kind, dedicated and devoted to helping people. And by using him in a way, I think Rossi is able to humanise the enormous scale of, the, of what is unfolding. 
These are people with different situation and through his individual recollection of specific cases and memory, I personally felt that the tragedy was brought back a timely reminder that this is not just some vast numbers game or a bunch of statistics and more importantly it doesn't ultimately matter for what reason these people are attempting to get to Europe. The tragic fact that so many of them are dying in great numbers is what we should be worried about. It's interesting how the migrants and refugees are presented because our first introduction comes through radio messages amongst the Italian Navy talking to the various boats that they're on and pleas for help followed by news reports saying that X amount of people have drowned sometimes in the hundreds. Rossi shows the mechanics of this interplay to between those in peril and those trying to save them. We see radars spinning, desperately sinking dots beyond the horizon and the patrol light ships scanning the water, Navy helicopters taking in off in the dawn light. There is a kind of abstraction to some of the imagery. We create radars, warships and helicopters to be the mechanics of war. And in the age of automated drone killings, fire HC shows us the same level of skill and technological information being used to an altogether more humane purpose. The film's lack of narration and often period of silence make for a contemplative experience culminating in when we do eventually come across a boat bobbing in the sea full of migrants. It is tragically clear from the off that some of them are dying and some of them have actually died and that is shown when we go down below that many of them have perished mostly due to dehydration sun exposure. Rossi in one moment keeps the camera on a woman, clearly in shock and traumatised, trying desperately hard not to break down in tears. I think the film plays better because we don't know the motivations of why these people have tried to cross the sea, because it doesn't actually matter in the least. These are ultimately people in need of help, but who don't. But what you don't get with fire at sea is some kind of call to action. It is a film that suggests the sea is, and for the seeable future, will be a place of unimaginable suffering, yet ultimately, the island and those who live on it will carry on, as they always have for generations to come. Fire at Sea is a rewarding work if you have the patience for it. It is certainly a film that plays like a classical neo-realist masterpiece. The very fact that you can liken the two is a testament, I think, to its achievement. Rossi is a director who is visible in certain scenes by virtue of the fact that it's so clearly he's directing Samuel. So some may argue this represents a little too much directorial interference. To be honest, I wasn't in the least bit bothered. Fire at Sea was about evoking a very special type of mood for me. It's a film that contemplates the past, the present and the future. And I found it to be thoroughly captivating and ultimately an incredibly moving film. Sadly, and I have to kind of chastise really artificial eye for this, because like this and Notes and Blindness, this film has only been given a DVD release in the UK. And I'm actually going to contact them and try and find out why that was, because I know that Fire at Sea is coming out in America and I believe Keenan are putting out a... Um, a Blu-ray of it and this film's crying out for Blu-ray. I even checked the technical specs. It was shot on Arri Alexa cameras and those those cameras but produce a wonderful HD image. So I, I don't know what's going on there and I will try and find out and update you as to why. I, I, it just seems incredibly bizarre to me because almost all their releases um, on the home video market are on Blu-ray and DVD apart from these two. So uh, I'll wait and see what they have to say about that. Got room for one more.
they call him the hangman. When the handbell says dead or alive, the rest of us just shoot you in the back and up on top of perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. But when John Roof the hangman catches you, you hang. Get in, boys! This here is Daisy Domergoo. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman to hang. Is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Well, well, well. Looks like Minnie's haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days. Yes, it does. One of them fellas is not what he says he is. Move a little strange, you're gonna get a bullet. Not a warning, not a question. A bullet. Film, and I mean actual film, has become something of a thing for cinephiles to become excited by in recent years. When Paul Thomas Anderson announced that The Master was to be shot on 75mm, the internet was salivating at the chance to see the film as it was supposed to be seen. It would take us back to the glory days of when we all record our childhood outings of going to see Lawrence of Arabia on its original release. And we don't remember these times because most of us weren't born then and suggesting films are somehow more prestigious simply based on the form that they are made on is total utter nonsense. One of my favourite films in recent years was Tangerine which was actually shot on iPhones and it's vastly better than The Master. Yet this is the age of film fetishisation. Yet with a vast number of cinemas converting to digital, many chains simply don't even have the ability to show the format, which I'm sure will have people decrying the fact that it's a cinema and should be able to play films, but never mind any of that. So, which is why when Quentin Tarantino announced that The Hateful Eight was going to be shot on 70mm Panavision, it caused something of an outpouring of bombast on the internet discussing the film as a must-watch, purely on the basis of the format it was made on. Quentin Tarantino wanted to bring a road-style presentation back to theatres. Yes, there was something quite nostalgic about the move, and I rather got the impression it made a lot of people not just go to their local multiplex, but to actively seek out and travel to theatres that were able to show the film in 70mm, which is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes going to this cinema should feel like an event rather than just a thing to do. Films are important and should be given the respect they deserve. For anyone in a relationship, I'd recommend trying this. Go on a proper date night to the cinema, go for a meal before, or actually set aside an entire evening just to watch a film that doesn't consist of sitting on the sofa and arguing about who is going to get up and make the tea. It's actually worth the hassle and the expense. Although I'm still slightly in shock about how the last time I actually personally did this, I ended up spending a hundred pounds, which wasn't including parking. But anyway, the key thing is, was The Hateful Eight actually worth the hassle? Well, yes, for me it was. I didn't see it on 70mm, my digital showing had to suffice, 
But regardless of what format it was filmed on, I loved The Hateful Eight, and indeed it was my favourite film of the year for quite some time. Quentin Tarantino is a rare talent. His films have the trappings of genre, as in what we see in the mise-en-scene, or... yet first and foremost they are Quentin Tarantino's films. He is one of the most singly distinctive voices working in Hollywood today. You have to salute someone who shoots on one of the largest formats known to man and sets the film almost entirely indoors. 17mm Panavision is supposed to have huge vistas and epic scales, and although we do get some of that, Quentin Tarantino makes a film about eight people who are the most disgraceful bunch of reprobates he has ever assembled to date. They truly are the hateful out of epic proportions, and the term larger than life has never been more apt. Largely taking part in one location, a windy haberdashery, Quentin Tarantino plays out a kind of whodunit situational comedy. Were it not a film, it would easily make a pretty great stage play, yet it is as cinematic as anything I had seen. And yes, the 70mm image looks amazing, especially now I've actually also seen it on Blu-ray. To say I cared about the characters would be entirely wrong, I just enjoyed watching them from Samuel Jackson and his apparent letter from Abraham Lincoln to Jennifer Jason Leigh was the truly horrible Daisy Domague. A character so bad, it was actually impossible on any level whatsoever not to want her to be hung, yet at the same time I found her completely hilarious. Walton Goggins reminded me of how much I enjoyed him in The Shields. There were shades of his character Shane Vendrell from that series in his character. The slightly dopey look and the over-keenness to impress the Bruce Dern as General Smithers. And I, I won't deny during the scene when Samuel L. Jackson regales Smithers with what happened to his son, I did find it incredibly hard not to laugh out loud at the word dingus. And of course there's Kurt Russell, who will always be cool as fuck, no matter what he's in. The only possible distraction for me was Tim Roth, however, for the most part, everyone was born to play these roles. And only Quentin Carantino can do this. Take Ultra Panavision, relocate it to a shed, fill it with the most horrible people imaginable, and for near on three hours keep you utterly enthralled. It may be slightly too nihilistic for some, and the film doesn't really say anything more profound than asking you to enjoy watching people fuck each other over and it is very much what it is this may be a western but it's a western unlike anything that's gone before it before and if you kind of combine this with the oscar winning score by Ennio morricone and the beautiful cinematography of robert richardson there really is no better way of spending three hours watching a load of reprobates blow each other to pieces in the widest frame scream imaginable Susan. Hi. Good to see you. <laughs> you look beautiful, as always. Do you know that you were my first crush? You were my first crush, too. Don't do this. He's too weak for you. The things you love about him now are the things you'll hate. I really wanted to be this person that you thought I was. When you love someone, you have to be careful with it. You might never get it again. My ex-husband used to call me a nocturnal animal. I didn't know you had an ex-husband. Did you love him? I did something horrible to him. I loved him in a brutal way. What are we gonna do? It's a question of how serious you are about seeing justice done. You're crazy. You're making a big mistake. 
never live to regret this. It's gonna be rough for him out there, not knowing how it's gonna come. <laughs> Nobody gets away with what you did. Okay, so now on to my favourite film of 2016. There is a scene in Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals in which a sheriff played by Michael Shannon, complete with Stetson and holstered pistol, stands below a neon motel zone whilst a scared and worried Jake Gyllenhaal desperately tries to solve the riddle of what has happened to his wife and child, who have been kidnapped by a gang of local thugs who forced them off the road on a deserted Texas highway. It is a moment that instantly elicits comparisons to any number of Hollywood noir films from the 30s onwards. Seamus Mugabe's exquisite cinematography transported me deep into the world of film lore. One of those wonderful moments where you know what you are watching is a film that has completely and utterly drawn you into its world. The fact that the scene in question is a fictional moment from the imagination of the film's lead character as she reads a novel sent to her from her heartbroken former husband adds another layer of artifice to the moment. How much of the scene is from the prose she is reading and how much, as we all do with novels, has she added to this moment with her own consumptions of the likes of Double Indemnity, Blood Simple and Mulholland Drive? I rather feel it's a peek into the mind of director Tom Ford, who has clearly seen the aforementioned films and a whole lot more. Indeed, Nocturnal Animals is such a film film that it almost feels pastiche at times. However, in no way, shape or form is this a criticism. Indeed, there is nothing more intoxicating than going to the cinema and watching a film that truly belongs in those darkened auditoriums. As soon as I'd watched Nocturnal Animals for the first time, my initial reaction was that I wanted to watch it again straight away. There is something admittedly a tad galling about a super rich fashion designer in his mid-50s with looks a thousand times better than you or I will ever look, deciding he wants to make a film and doing so. Ford's debut as single man rather set the tone for the world of pictorial animals. Ford's world is a world of the super rich and fabulous, and no doubt he spends a great deal of his life with beautiful people in beautiful homes perusing modern art and discussing the devastating latest novels of the fabulously dressed host in a chrome and glass beachside villa at the size of a shopping centre. So why not make films about the world that he knows, and I for one are glad that he does, because he's very good at it. Here, as with a single man, he is writer, director and producer, possibly it's too early to call him an auteur. So far he has demonstrated a stylistic approach that I for one have really taken to. Nocturnal Animals follows the story of Susan, played by Amy Adams, a rich gallery owner. Her and her husband, Arnie, have hit a financial crisis. Despite the plush veneer, their marriage is beginning to crumble around them. When out of the blue, Susan receives a manuscript from former husband, Tony, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, entitled Nocturnal Animals. The book is a violent tale of a man driven off the road by a gang of thugs who then kidnap and murder his wife and daughter. As Susan reads the book, she is brought to life in a framing narrative in which we see the novel's lead characters, Edward, played again by 
Jake Gyllenhaal, team up with the terminally ill Sheriff Bobby, played by Michael Shannon, to track down and deliver justice to the thugs, led by Ray, the terrifying Aaron Taylor Johnson. As Suzanne reads, she begins to reflect on her life. She broke Tony's heart long ago and begins to wonder what nocturnal animals might actually be saying to her. It's easy in the case of Susan to dismiss the character's actions as merely self-absorbed fretting of a class of people that can afford 200 pound lunches. Oh, how shallow their lives must be. We even have a flashback scene where Susan's mother advises her against marrying Tony. It's the oh so cliched struggling writer. Does he even have the talent? Well, not according to Susan, possibly not. And as mother says, Susan's a little more shallow and superficial than she likes to think. So why not just sack him off like everyone knows she's going to do anyway? The dispatching of Tony is shown is brutal. She aborts a baby and runs away with the dreamy hunk Arnie. The spug bastard everyone hates due to the fact he's insanely rich. I won't deny I did almost sigh and have a small laugh when post-abortion and being cradled by army, Tony just suddenly appears outside the abortion clinic in the pouring rain for double emotional sledgehammer of knowing his former wife has committed about every sin in the Bible. Yet melodrama in films has its very unique cruel thing and nothing tugs out the heartstrings more than a man who has just lost everything in a flash. I would wager Ford had watched Visconti's White Knights, a film which is effectively a 90 minute setup to crush a man to pieces. In his novel however, Tony has rewritten himself as something of an avenging husband and father. As the law becomes increasingly ineffective within the novel, he teams with Sheriff Bobby to bring about justice. The framing story brings the film's vis visceral punches. The scene in which Ray and co run Edward and his family off the road was bar none, the most terrifying of the year. Ray appears to despise Edward for his elitist attitude. It's possibly slightly too easy to see Ray as the apparent angry white man that seems to have dominated politics this year, and certainly Edward has all the trappings of middle-class snowflake whose worst existential nightmare is to bump into the likes of Ray on the open road. I personally saw Ray as a kind of extension of Amy. He destroys Edward's life, then becomes the figure of hatred and rage for Edward. These moments in the films are at times painful to watch. Ford strips Edward emotionally and physically, exposing his frailty. His guilt at what has happened and the way he rebuilds the character through escalating violence as he accompanies Bobby with ever more violent acts of revenge. Special credit must also go to Michael Shannon. He brings a stoic heroism to Bobby as if he genuinely believes that this case will be a fitting, if a legal epitaph to a career largely spent in the shadow of others and harmstrung by legal technicalities. And his dynamic with Gunnhall was actually superb, I thought. Despite Edward's muscular appearance, Gunnhall displays a kind of frustrated masculinity. His tone physique is not some kind of weapon to be used or even objectified. Instead, it was, seems more of a reference to the kind of social conditioning that Ray appears to be so revolted by. This was a character whose body was emblematic of those who can afford to and have the vanity to attend the gym and attain such a perfect body type. His eventual descent into violence is primal and revolting to him. And in the age of men having to man up and general politics in general, I felt not so Animals was actually very honest and indeed fair of how it deals with Edward and how he reacts to what he has to his family. Even after a moment of apparent narrative satisfaction, his reaction is to fall to the ground and curse his own inability to stop that all happened. Violence in the film is consequential, it has weight and it has meaning, and cru crucially to me, it was not gratuitous. 
Again, however, the film has come under fire for charges of misogynism, and I genuinely wonder where these types of criticism are going. How can a film that contains rape and murder women not be about male aggression? And it's not as if Nocturnal Element is promoting this behaviour as being a good thing. I doubt very much anyone watching it will be anything other than utterly appalled as to what happens, so I fail to see what the point is levelling this type of accusation achieves. I wonder if these people even think Nocturnal Animals should have been made, but let's be clear, the world is a better place for them having been made as opposed to not. The pointless debates around them seem to be expected as opposed, however, they are for me at least thoroughly uninteresting. Reading Nocturnal Animals in the film, Susan is shocked. It is the violence that troubles her, or is it something slightly deeper? Has Tony found the inspiration for Tao in how she treated him? And is this some sort of bitter, excruciatingly long fuck you as a kind of coda to their failed marriage? In the real world, Susan's new marriage collapses also. The man she left Tony for is now cheating on her. Susan retreats more and more into herself to try and re-establish lost connections in her sprawling, vast, minimalist house. Her isolation becomes even more apparent as she has clearly been stripped of all what makes the world worth living. And yes, poor rich girl. Yet I felt echoes of the femme fatale in Susan, partly through Seamus Mugabe's informed, perfectly composed and framed image. The mise-en-scene of Susan in her home may be conventional, symmetrical lines and cold grey walls with ample space aside of her, but when they look so good you can hardly complain and they act as a nice juxtaposition to the more naturalist aesthetic of Edward's framing story. The violence of the novel leaves a residue of fear in the real world. Was something nasty about to spring out of the shadow? Was, was Tony prepping her sorry, for a real world murdering? As the film jumped back and forward in time, it gave motive for such a thing to occur, the jilted ex-husband toying with his victim before her grisly end. Such was the air of mystery that had been built into the film. The screenplay is excellent and is Ford's ability to wring suspense out of scenes. I was generally on the proverbial edge of my seat. This was in part due to the fact that despite her thoughts, I found Susan to be a sympathetic and likely flawed person, helped of course by a terrific performance by Amy Adams. Where Nocturnal Animals leave Susan's has been a source of much debate. I for one felt Susan was dealing with the consequences of the past. Every life choice she has made has led to the moment, and it's a thoroughly sad one at that. To me, Nocturnal Animals was a kind of noir film, yet crucially, this felt like a very different rift on the noir genre. In short, I found it to be incredibly original. It were I to have one criticism of the film, it would be times I felt that Nocturnal Animals was directed and written to within an inch of its life. Every single line of dialogue appears to have some kind of double meaning every shot achingly composed, but it's a film made by pretty people, featuring pretty people, yet I never found Nocturnal Animals to be a shallow experience. I dare say it will be the target of derision in certain circles, but crucially this is a film that was made to be seen at the cinema, and I only hope that we won't have to wait so long to see Ford in action again. So that is it for my 2016 review show. I think you can probably get the idea that I wanted to have cinematic experiences uh, in 2016. I seem to have found myself saying that and reiterating it over and over again. And perhaps it's worth um, reiterating and saying over and over again. I really want to make 2017 just kind of build on this passion and this drive I'm having for film again. Luckily, I'm going to kind of be getting back into working on more creative projects. And I think it's come about really by 
the way in which films are being discussed and I know I've, I've mentioned it before, but I get so bored of going on like Facebook groups and just seeing this constant obsession over the numbers and sequels announced. I don't really hear people discussing and speaking about films with a great deal of passion. It's something I'm going to address with this podcast in 2017. So many thanks for listening i hope you've enjoyed this please let me know what you think of my selections it won't be very long before i'm back um there will also be some master of cinema cast coming up very soon so you can find that on master of cinema cast and you can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com with regards to the blog i'm going to be um putting a lot more um things up on it probably not my own um, writings or material perhaps pictures and that kind of thing but if I find interesting stuff out on the internet I'll post it up there um, f- for people to have a look but you can find me over on that um, you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast and you can find me on Facebook as well and if you want to find me on Facebook I'm Tom Jennings I'm the person who is looks like I'm urinating on the Giants Causeway in Ireland I'm not I was taking a picture but if you send me a message in a friend request just let me know when you send um, a, a friend's request that you, you, you're contacting me through the podcast because um without it sometimes you do get i've had a few requests from people in the past i've not been entirely sure who they were so without any further ado i'm going to let you get back to whatever it is you're doing many thanks for listening and i'll be in contact soon bye